We're going to take a look at Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, remembering the context. This is right after Jesus says, you got to take up your cross, die daily and follow me. Verse 1, chapter 9, Mark's Gospel. And Jesus was saying to them, truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves and He was transfigured or changed before them. This is the change that changes everything, amen? The change of seeing and beholding the glory of Christ. It gives you a new perspective on the call to die. He was transfigured before them and His Garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to Him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone, and as they were coming down the mountain, He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. There it is once more, the Son must die. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Would you pray with me? God, help us to be encouraged this morning. Lord, Last week, we were challenged by you. We were challenged by the the call to follow you no matter what it costs. And God, we, we, we see that clearly, but we need a fresh glimpse of your glory. God, we need a fresh understanding of your power, your resurrection power. We need a, a fresh understanding that you are worth it. And that you have come in power for those who follow you to the cross. Help us, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been staying with us in Mark's Gospel, you know the disciples just heard about this call to come and die. And if Jesus has to die on the way to the cross, that means that His followers must deny themselves as well and take up their cross for the sake of our King and the sake of His Gospel. And it's advanced deep into our lives and out into the world Verse 8, 35. Verse 35 of chapter 8. The king has come to die. And so must his disciples, his followers, his church. Peter and the disciples resist that message. They still need to see what Rick Warren reminded us of back in his book, The Purpose Driven Life. Did you do The Purpose Driven Life like most of other evangelicals across America? Do you remember the first sentence in The Purpose Driven Life? It's not about you. And when you get a glimpse of who Jesus really is, 
you come to see that it's really not about you. It's really all about the king. You see, God can use that to encourage you to abandon yourself to Christ and His mission. God, you, you call me to die to myself. Well, what, what do I replace it with? What, have I, what am I dying for? And then God gives us a glimpse of His glorious King. The Spirit gives us an encouraging look at the Son's glory and His Father's affirmation. In verse 7, the Father says of the Son, listen to Him. And on this Father's Day, I think it's helpful to point out that good earthly fathers reflect their good heavenly Father. That they encourage their children. Jesus has just been presented by Peter an alternate plan. Jesus, you don't really need to go to the cross. You don't really have to do that. You're already the King. How about you bypass the cross and the resurrection stuff? And so in this passage, we see our Heavenly Father encouraging His Son by His affirmation, listen to Him. And He's encouraging all who follow Jesus to listen to Jesus and to take up their cross and follow Him on the way to Calvary so that others may know of Him. Fathers, thank You for the way that You've encouraged Your children. My growing up years, I'll tell you, there are moments along the way that I don't know what I would have done without my father's encouragement. It's good to encourage your children. It's a reflection of the goodness of our Heavenly Father. So in verse 1, Jesus promises His disciples. He, start, he begins His sentence with Amen. Jesus doesn't end His sentences with Amen. He begins them with Amen. Because He's God. And He can say, it's going to happen. Truly, amen, I promise you, some of those who are standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That's, that's a pretty bold and awesome promise. The, the, the kingdom of God has come in power in the lifetime of some of the disciples, so says Jesus, verse 1. It's a promise, you can bank on it. And what we discover is six days later, or literally after six days, that the glory of God's everlasting kingdom we, is hidden up, it's wrapped up in its king. Six days after the disciples hear Christ's costly call, they behold the radiance and divine glory of the king who leads them into the forever seventh day of God's goodness. As Aiken writes, Jesus was not talking when he promised this coming of the kingdom exclusively about the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. He was talking about the transfiguration and Jesus' glorious resurrection. In the transfiguration, God reveals the glorious, true identity and, G- and deity of Jesus Christ. And that is the foundation, church, of our encouragement to do whatever it takes for the sake of Christ and the gospel. The call to die is followed by a compelling vision of who Jesus is. So this morning, very briefly, we see three things. To remain encouraged as we follow Christ... We must behold His true nature. We must listen to Jesus. And we must learn from the suffering of God's servants. If we're going to stay encouraged on the road to Calvary as we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him, we've got to do those three things. First, we must behold Christ's true nature. The call to follow Jesus is costly. And it is also filled with encouragement and confirmation, Aiken says. What a confirmation God gives. Jesus has asked who the disciples say He is, and now He shows them 
Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. As Edwards writes, this revelation is modeled after the greatest revelation of God in the Old Testament on Mount Sinai. Do you remember when Moses goes up Mount Sinai to, to get the law? He goes up with three named persons, the three priests, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. He also takes along seven elders. Jesus goes up the mountain with what? Three disciples, Peter, James, and John, in both at Mount Sinai and at the Mount of Transfiguration. God appears in a veiled form in an overshadowing crowd. In both the Mount Sinai and the Mount of Transfiguration, a voice speaks from out of the cloud. And at the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is transfigured or transformed before His disciples. The Greek word is the word from which we get our word metamorphosis. It's a, it's a change. It's a transformation. And the one before them is infinitely greater than Moses. He is so transfigured that it doesn't just impact his face. Even the clothes that he's wearing are impacted. All the bleach in the world could not produce the radiant brightness that he reveals to Peter and to James and to John. He doesn't just reflect the glory of God. He is the glory of God. He is God's Son. He's the weightiness of God. He's the brightness of God. He is the Son of God. He is God's glory. Transfiguration means a radical change or transformation. In the case of Jesus, the transfiguration doesn't signify a change in His nature, but a change in the outward visible transformation of His appearance to accord with His nature. In other words, what had been hidden for a moment is no longer hidden. Instead, it is shining right through. Before the disciples stands the one of whom the psalmist said, O Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Though His glory had been hidden by His humanity, it was never, ever absent. In Paul, or as Paul writes, in God, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Perhaps John, when he's writing the Gospel of John there in chapter 1, perhaps he had this moment on the Mount of Transfiguration in mind when he said, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. To sustain us on the way to Calvary, on the road to taking up our cross and following after Him, Christ gives us a glimpse of His glory, a vision of Christ's true and divine nature. And it's not as though... Here's what happens when we come to a passage like this. We think, well, that was for the three disciples up on the mountain, and I don't get to see in the way that they see. Oh, no, no, no. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter describes this very encounter on the mountaintop, and he says, but if you think that was glorious, if you think that was beautiful, if you think that was wonderful, don't count just on my eyewitness testimony to the glory of Christ. You've got something better, a better reflection of the glory of Christ in your hands in the Word of God. We have the even more sure prophetic Word to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp 
shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. So don't pine for the fact that you didn't get to be on the Mount of Transfiguration. Instead, hold the glory. Behold the glory of the Son when you encounter the Son of God in the reading of His Word. And let God open up to you just how resplendent and awesome and wonderful and radiant His Son is. Where do we find encouragement for following Jesus in taking up our cross and dying daily? We don't find it in a closed Bible. We find it in an open Bible. We find it in a Bible that is nourishing and ministering to our souls and showing us our deep need for Christ and His great glory. As We behold the radiant glory of Christ in His Word. We find encouragement. And I pray, North Roanoke Baptist Church, that He would grant us eyes to see, like Peter, James, and John, just how magnificent He is. That He would show us that He has a magnificence that drowns out every fear and every objection that we may have to following Him on the way to Calvary. The Jesus who told the disciples that they must deny themselves and die, He's not crazy. But He is crazy glorious. As Achan writes, Jesus of Nazareth, in His nature and essence, is God. He's deity dressed in a body. He looks defeated, but He is actually victorious. He looks like a regular dude, but in actuality, He is deity. We are not following a loser church. We are following the living Lord Jesus Christ, whose glory is beyond compare. Secondly, we've got to listen to Jesus, church. The Son of the Father to whom the Scriptures point. Now, in, in the, earlier in the service, in that summary sentence, I left out that little clause at the end. But, but the, it's a bigger point than just that we need to listen to Jesus. We need to listen to Jesus because Jesus is what the Old Testament anticipates from the very first sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. In the firstborn... God made the heavens and the earth. As if having their eyes opened to the blinding glory of Christ's presence was not enough for them, now Elijah and Moses show up. Can you imagine? Elijah and Moses show up there with Jesus and they have a little talk with Jesus. Have a little talk with Jesus makes it right. Can you imagine if you were Moses or Elijah? I mean, if I was Moses, I'd be like, you know, Jesus, I'm really sorry I got a little... A little frustrated and I hit that rock a little early because I know that, that the water came out in anticipation of the fact that you're the living water. Elijah would be like, man, those chariots of fire were awesome. I mean, just we don't know what they talk about, but it's got to be like, you're what we were looking for. This is awesome. Elijah and Moses see the son that they spent their lives promising and seeking. And there he is. It's like, whoa, yeah. I mean, we know that's true, right? We're not just speculating because in 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, Peter tells us, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted what? The sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. This is who we were looking for. He's here. The glorious, Satan-crushing, sin-forgiving Son anticipated by Moses and Elijah had come 
Moses had delivered the Israelites from Egypt. Elijah had delivered the Israelites from idolatry. And now Jesus had come to deliver his people from captivity to sin and to death. But the presence of Moses and Elijah isn't just about their fact, the fact that they were deliverers. It is more about the fact that Elijah and Moses represent the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. Here stand the law of God and the grace of God converging in Jesus Christ, the one who is God incarnate and the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament promised. I think it's interesting that Peter, James, and John apparently recognize Elijah and Moses right away. But they still haven't really recognized Jesus. They, they knew the law. They knew the prophets, but they still weren't reading them in the way that it showed them the Jesus that they should have been seeking the entire time. They're still figuring them out. And they're terrified, verse 6. So Peter blurts out the only thing he can think of. Rabbi, let's, uh, let's make some tents. Let's stay up here on the mountain for a while, hang out, have a little campfire, maybe call Don Powell. Have some s'mores. And the idea of pitching a tent is not a bad idea. In Zechariah 14, the prophet describes the victory of God and His people as a time when all the nations, not just Israelites, all the nations would go up and keep the Feast of Booze together. Now the Feast of Booze is the week-long feast in which they remember that God protected the Israelites in the wilderness. Now why would all the nations celebrate the Feast of Booze. They would do it because God Himself would come in the person of His Son, not so that we could make a tabernacle for Him, but so that He could make His dwelling place with man. We don't need to pitch a tent for Jesus. We need to find the shelter of God's presence in Jesus, who is a tabernacle for all nations, which is what was anticipated by Zechariah chapter 14. So in verse 7, the overshadowing cloud of God's glory appears. God's going to set this right. And the glory cloud back at Mount Sinai was on the mountain for six days. In Exodus 40-35, the glory cloud filled the tabernacle. In 1 Kings chapter 8, the glory cloud filled Solomon's temple. And now the glory cloud of God descends and Moses and Elijah are no longer present. Suddenly, it's Jesus alone. And the Father says of this one, the living Lord Jesus Christ. Here is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. You see, when the cloud disappears, Elijah and Moses vanish and Jesus alone remains. Achan tells us, this is God's beloved, one-of-a-kind Son and we are to listen only to Him. Now you say, does that mean I throw away my Old Testament like Marcion or like Thomas Jefferson did? Of course not. What it means is Jesus is speaking to us in the Old Testament. It means that the goal of the Old Testament is to show us Christ and His mission, which is exactly what Jesus says in Luke chapter 24. It means we must not read the Old Testament with a veil over our spiritual eyes, but as those who have received the Holy Spirit and are seeking the Christ to whom the Old Testament points. The Lord your God, Moses told us in Deuteronomy 18.15, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. The prophet greater than Moses has come. The king greater than David that has come. The great high priest who will sacrifice himself on the cross has come. The Lamb of God 
has come and we must listen to Him. What is He saying? He's saying what He just said before they went up to the mountain. If you're going to follow Me, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Me. The death of Jesus... The sacrifice of His people in order that more people might know Him is not a new concept. It's not a new teaching. It's the promise of the new covenant, God's Son in our place, anticipated from the very beginning. A kingdom expanding as its citizens go to the nations, celebrating the victory that their King has brought to them. As Aiken writes, we will never understand the person and work of Christ apart from the cross and the resurrection. If you leave out the cross, there is no atonement. If you leave out the resurrection and there is no victory over sin, Jesus will embrace the cross, ascend Calvary's hill, and drink the cup of suffering filled with the wrath of God. We must listen to Jesus because of who He is and because the Father has commanded us to hear the voice of Jesus, the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. Thirdly, if we're going to be encouraged on this journey of denying self daily and taking up our cross, we've got to learn from the suffering of God's servants. I tell you, as a, as a pastor, one of the greatest encouragements that I have discovered is to be able to talk to men who have pastored for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, even 75 years. I, one of my greatest heroes in the faith, his name is Dr. M.O. Owens, Jr., and if he makes it to September 4th of this year, he'll be 105 years old. He's, he's preached longer. He's preached two careers. And until five years ago, he was playing golf three times a week and preaching three times a week. I mean, that's, that's my kind of guy. And, and I got to sit down with M.O. several times during my time at Southeastern and just say, how'd you do it? What, what were the struggles? What were the challenges? What were the battles? What, what did people say or do? What? what Tell me about your, your darkest hours and what did you cling to? And you know what? Some of the most godly people in the world suffer in the greatest ways. Some of the godliest people in the world suffer in the greatest ways. And we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus goes to the cross in order to redeem us. And when, when we see the faithfulness of godly people who are assaulted and persecuted and we see how they stand, it encourages us to know that our lives compared to what they face is pretty much nothing. And if they stood, then I can stand. Because Christ stands with me. And if Christ be for me, then who can be against me? You see, Jesus and His disciples head down the mountain. And He tells them not to report what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. There it is again. Resurrection and death. Resurrection and death. So here's the good news. For us, church, when Jesus rises from the dead, the season of silence is over. And we have the privilege of proclaiming Him among all nations. And we know that all the nations are in view. Why? Because Jesus calls Himself the Son of Man. We've already covered this in the series in Mark, but in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, the prophet anticipates a day when the Son of Man is given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Did you know Jesus has unrivaled authority? He's just been transfigured before His disciples. They've seen His glory. They've seen how amazing He is. And they come down the mountain. And what does Jesus say? 
Wasn't that great, guys? You want to go do that again? No. He says the son still has to die. And in verse 10, rather than listening to Jesus, the Bible tells us that they seized on his words. That's a term of trying to attack. Well, maybe we could use Jesus' words and twist them in a way to convince him to get out of this whole death and resurrection thing. Maybe we could twist the meaning of resurrection to mean not physical death. Maybe I could just turn over a new leaf or try harder or make some adjustments. But God, surely you're not calling me to actually die to myself. Surely you're not actually asking me to substitute your interests for my interests. But a glorious resurrection church still requires death. Not just turning over a new leaf, trying harder, or making some adjustments. It requires the death of Christ the Son in our place. There is no escaping Christ's call to deny ourselves and take up our cross. But the disciples think they may have found the angle. Didn't we just see Elijah? I'm pretty sure that was Elijah up on the mount. And doesn't it say in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So what are the disciples doing here? They're saying, they're suggesting that if Elijah has come as the forerunner of the restoration of all things, then there's no need for the Son of Man to go to the cross. If the day of the Lord's judgment follows the coming of Elijah, Jesus, can't we just get out of this whole cross thing altogether? And to this objection, what does Jesus say? Well, pretty much you're right. Elijah does come before the great and terrible day of the Lord, but you can't just leave out the portions of Scripture that talk about the cross and the resurrection. You can't just leave off what's inconvenient in the Bible and invent your own reality. The Bible says Elijah will come, and the Bible also says it is written that the Son of Man, verse 12, will suffer many things and be treated with contempt. The Scriptures don't just promise victory through a glorious Son. They also promise victory that must come through suffering. It happens in Places like Genesis 3.15, Genesis 22, Psalm 16, 22, 23, Isaiah 52 and 53. Jesus says, it is written. And it is written means that God has spoken. It's irrevocable. You can't take it back. There must be a cross. There must be a resurrection. And even though Elijah has come, restoration still requires death and resurrection. The same divine scriptures that predicted the coming of Elijah prior to the day of the Lord also predict a suffering Messiah. And by the way, Elijah has come, but it's not the Elijah on the mountain. It was John the Baptist. And they did to him whatever they wished. In Matthew 17, we learn that the disciples understand Jesus is talking of John the Baptist who came in the likeness of Elijah and, and what happened to John the Baptist? Do you remember just a few chapters ago? He lost his head for his faithfulness to Christ. Right there in the middle of the journey of the disciples on their first mission trip, we get the story of John the Baptist. Why John the Baptist? Because John fulfilled the assignment given to him by God. And so would Jesus. 
God would faithfully see that His disciples would make it through their suffering and their greatest hours of trial. God had not forgotten John the Baptist. Neither will He forget you or me. We can endure whatever hardship may come on the path of following Christ, not because we love hardship. Not because we're asking for it. Not because we're going out in the street like, just, just beat me up for Jesus' sake. But because if we truly follow Jesus, hardship will come. And Edwards tells us this, we need to get this church, the inevitable suffering that results in discipleship to Jesus is not a sign, is not a sign of abandonment by God, but of fellowship with the Son of Man who must suffer much and be rejected. In other words, when you're going through trials and adversity and disappointments and you're doing it for the sake of Christ and the Gospel, that doesn't mean God has abandoned you. It means you're walking in the way of Christ. And you should feel the assurance of the presence of God with you in the adversity that comes. Faith in the face of adversity proves that salvation comes by faith in the face of whatever we must tackle. It proves that we know that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And we know that Christ and life everlasting with Him is a reward that is so great and so glorious and so beautiful and so wonderful that it is all worth it. When we keep the glory of Christ, the promise of the Old Testament, and the faithfulness of the saints in mind, that is where we find encouragement to follow Christ. Until He comes, until, or until He calls us home. North Roanoke Baptist Church, let's keep on following Christ our King. Would you bow with me? King Jesus, we love You. We thank You for Your goodness to us this morning. We thank You that You've given us a vision of Your glory. And God, we ask, that we would not grow weary in the work of doing good. That You would give us boldness and courage to take up our cross, die daily, and follow You no matter where You call us to go. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning as we stand and sing grace that is greater than all our sin, if you'd like to join hands with North Roanoke Baptist Church as a team that is trying to make a difference for Christ in the Roanoke Valley and around the world, we'd invite you to come. If you don't know that Christ is your Savior, that He died not just for sinners, but that He died for you, and that you are a recipient of His great salvation, don't let another day go by until you know this great King. Let's stand together.